This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Welcome back into the podcast, everybody. It is episode number 149 of Play by Playcast. I, of course, am Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. Find us on social media at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet. Or you can shoot me an email at J G O D E T T at B S U. That's BSU for Ball State University.edu. Jay Godet at BSU.edu. There is nothing more broadcastery than how I'm recording the intro to this week's podcast. Heading on the road this weekend for Ball State Baseball. And uh, I've got laundry going on. I've got the dishes going on. I'm sitting at the desk doing a little bit of work on the computer. Uh, just had some dinner and uh, waiting to pack because I have no clean boxers. That shouldn't happen, because we're really not in season. Uh, like, I should have time to do that. Not traveling a ton. Such is life of being an announcer. Is what I'm going to blame that on. Uh, anyway, our guest today on episode number 149 is Tom Hart of ESPN and SEC Network. Kind of the same thing. Uh, but ESPN and, and the SEC Network and... Uh, before that, the Atlanta Braves, and before that, Comcast Sports Southeast, or maybe during that, Comcast Sports Southeast, uh, and he's been with Fox Sports Radio, and uh, before all of that, he was in minor league baseball. He has climbed the ranks after being a student at Missouri, uh, to the Capital City Bombers, to the Winston-Salem Warthogs, to the Tennessee Smokies, uh, to eventually the ESPN platforms that we know him on today, most notably as the primetime game of the week SEC network uh, football voice in the fall. He took over those reins from Brent Musburger. Uh, good conversation with Tom. We, we dive a little bit into football today, but uh, it is baseball season. He's got baseball coming up this week. He's got uh, the Florida Gators um, this weekend for SEC network or ESPNU, one of those two. We talk a lot about his coming up through the minor leagues, and it'll be evident, but the thing that I took away most from this conversation is the preparation side and, and the ingraining yourself in a team. So keep an ear open for that early. Uh, but where we start is with one of, inarguably, the greatest mascots in all of minor league baseball. R.I.P. Uh, the Winston-Salem Dash are now the affiliate in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Before they were the Dash, or hyphens, uh, they were the Winston-Salem Warthogs. Their last season was 2012 or 2013? No, 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 no. Way before that. Their last season was 2008, maybe. 2009 max. Somewhere in that range. Uh, and when the, the Warthogs became the Dash, uh, so too died Wally the Warthog. <laughs> who, he was a Warthog. His name was Wally, and he drove a little car around the uh, warning track dirt of the uh the field 
Ernie Shore Field in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So where else would I start but by talking about coming up through the ranks in minor league baseball and everyone's favorite mascot, Wally the Warthog. It's Tom Hart on episode number 149 of Play by Play Cast. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of Wally the Warthog memories. Um, for publication or not for publication? Uh, for publication? Um, okay, so for publication, my best, my, my most remarkable memory was the smell of the suit. <laughs> um, it's a smell that you'll never, ever forget. It's a smell of if Pan Sprat guys went to spring break for a week and then went camping for a week after that and never showered. That's what Wally smells like. For all of the children to hug. Yeah, exactly right. The, the the reason I ask is just because uh so my my first job in baseball I, I was uh, I was in Salem Virginia and uh, Jason Benetti was my first boss and our favorite mascot was always Wally the Warthog because every time we went to Winston, Larry Barry was the PA announcer. I don't know if he was when you were there, but but he would always Jason always used to say he would sound surprised that Wally was there. Like he'd announce the mascot and be like, oh, and Wally's here. It's like well, of course he's here. <laughs> like, it's a game. He's he's supposed to be here. Um, but yeah, he was always he was always the best. Um, what are the best memories you have of of coming up through minor league baseball? And there's so many of them. Um, you know, there's baseball memories, there's friendship memories, um, there's professional development memories. Um, I think my favorite part was uh, we had we had a variety of managers for my three years, starting in Winston Salem. Um, but we had the same pitching coach all three years, Juan Nieves, who's been a major league pitching coach at various stops over the last handful of years. And I, you know, when you take the bus to the ballpark, that's your only way to get to the ballpark on the road. And you arrive at three o'clock or four o'clock. There's only so much you can do in the press box. And so I would go down on a daily basis, if not every other day, maybe. And I would watch pitchers bullpen sessions. And that's how I learned about pitching is I would stand with Juan and watch guys throw. And I would watch guys who um, had no chance to make it to the big leagues. And I would watch guys who, like Rick and Keel, who had had great success in the big leagues and were back. And I would watch others who were on their way to being major league stars. And every one of them learned something every time they got up in the bullpen. And I, I, I was just amazed at the time because Juan was such a great and patient teacher. I thought, you know, they have this backwards. The patience and the understanding and the teaching while it's necessary at the minor league level, this should be happening at the big league level. Um, you know, Juan Nieves at, at the time and whether it was Juan or other pitching coaches that I saw over the course of the year, I thought, you know, the pyramid is inverted here. You know, these guys deserve big league jobs because they're doing more teaching about pitching and tinkering and learning and working with guys one-on-one that I think happens um, at the big league level just because there's so much there's so much time together. There's so much time to learn the game. So that was that was one of my fondest, most fond memories is standing in the bullpen and, and watching guys throw and, and learning what makes a good pitcher. Um, 
And the fact that it, I don't know that that necessarily paid off, but years later when I was doing um, Braves baseball and, and to, to back up a little bit, I mean, that's kind of how I treated every one of the games uh, I went to. I was going to learn more sitting in the manager's office when he's filling out his lineup card or standing in the bullpen and watching guys throw the side day or going to the Fridays for a pop after the game with the coaching staff or hanging out with the players on the bus and talking the game. I was going to learn more there than I would um, anywhere else. And, and I did. And so one of the best compliments I ever got was when I started working for the Braves and I did an interview with John Sherholtz and um, after the interview, he went back to the cage and he turned around five minutes later and he came back to me and he asked me, you know, how long I played. Hmm. And I kind of scoffed. I said, I'm, I, I didn't play. I, I mean, maybe maybe me confused with someone else. And he gave me this great compliment. And he said, well, you know how to talk the game. Where did you learn how to talk the game? Um, and he didn't know anything about my background. He really didn't know who I was. Um, and I said, well, I spent nine years in the liners. You know, you spend nine years bedded with teams and riding the bus and watching bullpens and hanging out in the manager's office. You learn how to talk the game. Um, and you learn not just how to talk, but you learn the game itself. So those that's my most fond memory, um, how it prepared me just kind of for life in general. But specifically, uh, it was a nine-year crash course in professional baseball. You know, that's one of those things where if I, I think about it, like if I was in the minor leagues now, I would I would act differently than I did when I was younger. Um, and it's different. It's different now being that I'm in college. So I like, you know, I, I can be around the coaches in that same way. And the, the players are still all, you know, 18 years old. But if I went to the minors and I was managers ages now, uh, how would I act differently in that regard? Because I, I was always like I was right out of college when I did minor league baseball, like a lot of us are. Um, and I was always afraid to to be around too much because I didn't want to be like the the pesky radio guy. Um, I was never, I, I never felt like I was of the age to be in a like social club, so to speak, with a lot of our coaches. Um, so I was always trying to to be very careful in terms of how to walk that line and how to develop that relationship. Uh, how did you approach it from that standpoint of getting them to be very open to the fact that you were just going to be around in that fashion, um, but also not being around too much it's a great question and it's a it's a learned experience but it's a social experience that uh, applies to every walk of life and continues to apply to my job today um i think they understood that i was i was there to be a sponge and i was there to learn um, I didn't know the answers. I didn't pretend to know the answers. I have a natural curiosity about whatever it is I'm doing or whatever sport I'm covering. Um, but I didn't, you know, like you were saying, you, you don't want to badger anybody. You, you don't want to walk in the door and people go, oh, here he comes again. <laughs> uh, so I think I, think I found a, a great balance. Um, you know, you listen, everybody can tell when, when they're in a room that they're uh, – whether whether or not you know you're included in the conversation should be uh, hint number one. Mm. But there are other times where uh, you know I I wanted to be a part of it and I was. And I remember specifically, um, and it was a financial situation. I, I, I remember vividly 
Then my first job, it was basically an internship, but my first job out of school at the Capital City Bombers in the Sally League, I was making nothing for road games except for meal money, which I believe at the time was 20 bucks a day, which was $5 more than the players were making, if you can believe that. Uh, and I was wasn't on salary or, or really getting paid for home games with the exception of when I would work the scoreboard or be the PA announcer. And I don't know, maybe that paid me, you know, 45 or 70 bucks a game, depending on what role I was in. Uh, but we had a, a day game in Asheville, North Carolina, and Doug Davis was our manager. He went on, you know, to be a bench coach in the big leagues and got on the bus after the game. And he said, Hey Tom, the, me and the staff were going to go out to dinner down the road. And whether they were going to Fridays or Chili's or Outback Steakhouse or Ruth Chris was irrelevant to me because I didn't have any money. And he said, you want to come along with us? And I looked at him honestly, and I said, well, thanks for the invite. But I bought a foot-long sub at Subway today, and I saved the second half for dinner, so I'm good. And I, I didn't have the cash to go and have a $20 meal. Um, or to have a few pops with them, or whatever it might be. But I knew I had a turkey and cheese sitting in my, you know, little hotel fridge that I'd already paid for, and so that was, that's what I was going to eat for that night. Um, but I learned so much. I developed relationships with so many people over the years, and it certainly paid off when I started doing some big league work, and that I, I knew how to handle myself around a clubhouse. Um, I knew how to handle myself you know, around quote unquote baseball people. And that is, that, that applies to any of the sports that I cover today. What other professional development lessons stand out most from those early years, those formative years? Well, the thing I learned early, I mean, there wasn't, and I don't know if there is today, there's not a whole lot of teaching involved. I mean, all of the life lessons and the professional lessons are, are, self-taught and learned through trial and error on your own. Um, you know, I wish I could say that, that I had um, a host of a dozen mentors that I sent my tapes off to and, and would routinely critique me and help me out and, and make me better or give me tips. And, and there's no doubt there were people along the way who have helped me out in that regard. Um, but what I learned early on is that I needed to have a good ear for my own broadcasting and I needed to critique it myself. And so I learned, and this is the beauty of baseball. When you're doing it every day, you can mis make mistakes on a Monday night and you're right back at it Tuesday where you can fix it um, and you can adapt and you can learn. So I would routinely listen to my tapes on the bus rides after the game, um, whether it was back to the hotel or on to the next city or, or back home. And a lot of times, quite frankly, um, it was cringeworthy. And I would think to myself, man, you got to fix that. I mean, mm. that's, that's stupid. Why would you say that? Are you using this phrase too often? Um, but by doing so, I developed a critical ear that I could, first of all, correct for the next broadcast. But then it would go on to help me, and I could correct. I got to the point where I could correct it within that broadcast. And then it became a filter to keep you from saying it before it even comes out of your mouth. And so I think that from a professional development standpoint, that helped me more than anything. That I understood, just like a hitter is going to have an 0 for 4, I understood that I could have a bad night, but 
as long as I got better and I used that as a learning experience and I was honest with myself that, um, that it was worth my time to continue to do those games to get better and to improve. Um, and so for broadcaster, there's a lot of different areas of professional development, but nothing in my opinion is more important than your on air development. Um, but not to say that networking isn't important or that other skills aren't important, um, but you have to have talent to do it and you have to have the ability to refine that talent so you're continuously improving. And once again, just like the other things we've talked about, I continue to use those skills to this day um, to make sure that my, my football broadcast one Saturday is better than it was the Saturday before. Um, and that applies once again to Every time you're on the air, it can always be better, and there's always something to learn. What was the goal for you early on? Um, like, did you want to be a, a a baseball radio guy at the major league level? Did you want to get into television when when you were dredging through those long bus rides? Uh, what was it all for in the early years? I didn't have a specific goal um, because I learned, and, and this was a, a, just a sidebar, real quick. Um, I picked everybody's brain that I could, and if, usually that was the other announcers that were in that same league. Mm. And uh, I learned early on that the guys who um, only wanted to get to the big leagues or only wanted to get to the next level of baseball were severely limiting their opportunities down the road. Um, I had other sports interests. I wasn't just a baseball guy. In fact, when I started baseball, it was probably a third favorite sport behind basketball and football. Um, so I wanted to be versatile enough to be hireable by any organization um, whose job was a step up from where I was. Um, I, I believe in being where your feet are in that you can't be working. You can't do a good job uh, at your current in your current role if you're always looking to the next one. So you have to be dedicated to it. But my goal was to be professional and versatile enough and get experience outside of the baseball season to where I might have an opportunity, um, whether it was, you know, college basketball or pro baseball or um, college football. So I worked with, you know, I did a lot of different things on the, on the broadcasting front and I interviewed for a lot of different positions, trying to figure out where I wanted to fit in or, or where I would be a fit. Um, so I didn't have a specific, you know, hey, I want to be the voice of the Yankees. I had a lot of jobs that appealed to me, a lot of positions that appealed to me, uh, but I knew that I wasn't qualified for any of those great jobs unless I continued to perfect my craft at the level that I was at. I got started in television um, because, as, as such goes nowadays, you know, I, I work for a school that works for a conference that has an ESPN3 deal, and, you know, voila, I had 30 games on, you know, quote-unquote TV. Um, it, it was not that way, um, uh, like, as, as recently as five years ago. So, like, what was the approach for you in terms of getting yourself on camera? How did you, how did you make that transition to, to first get your dabbles in TV? Because that can be one of the harder jumps of anything. Well, there are a couple of different um, elements at play for me to get me in that door. Um, the, chronologically, the first one occurred when I was doing double-A baseball uh, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And one of the first meetings that I took when I got to town was with Bob Kessling, the longtime 
Voice of the Vols. And that was set up through Stan Cotton, who I'd gotten to know at Wake Forest, same town as the Winston-Salem Warthogs, where my first shot came from. Um, Stan is an Oxville native. Stan knew, had known Bob for a long time. They had worked together at one point in television. And Stan said, when you get, your, get settled over in Knoxville, um, call Bob up, introduce yourself, go to lunch, whatever it might be. So um, that's exactly what I did with Bob. And lo and behold, I think it was that very spring, or maybe it was the next spring, Bob was doing play-by-play for an, an old cable network called CSS, Comcast Sports Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, we shared a lot of SEC and ACC schools, especially around the Atlanta area. And um, he was supposed to do their baseball package. And um, the Tennessee men's basketball team was playing in the NCAA tournament at the time. So it was a simple phone call. Hey, can you can you go fill in for me and do this game this weekend? And that one game turned into two, um, turned into a couple down the road, turned into some football the next fall, um, which – which is where I, that's exactly where I got my reps. That's where I got known. That's what gave me tape to send out to others. Um, but without the networking connection to Bob Kessling through Stan Cotton, the voice of the Demon Deacons, and I don't know that that opportunity would have ever been there for me. What, what's unique to baseball on television? Uh, I, I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like that, it, it, it's got a different vibe to doing baseball on TV than even football or basketball. Um, in terms of understanding pacing, in terms of understanding storytelling, what's unique and or difficult about that particular medium? Um, well, first of all, just television in general, no one tunes in to hear the play-by-play broadcaster. It's about setting your analyst up, giving them a chance to shine, putting them in positions to succeed, helping them navigate through the broadcast, not the game. They know how to navigate through the game. They know what they're seeing, but it's uh, let's refine this and let's learn how to tell a story about this player. And that, that's how I decide how and when you're going to present information about different people. Um, the timing, when is the right time to tell a story? Um, let's not get into a story about the pitcher when Mike Trout at the plate. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's wait for the bottom of the order or when there's just a feeling of a general lull in the game that opens itself up to storytelling. So I think that's the, the biggest lesson uh, that uh, the most people have a difficulty with, and it, it just takes reps and feel. Um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There are times where you just have a gut feeling, you know what, nothing's happening right now. Um, Either the game is dragging or the broadcast is dragging. And it might be when Mike Trout's at the plate. And it might be because Mike Trout's on his way to an 0 for 4 um, with, you know, 15 foul balls every plate appearance. But guess what? Well, we've got time to, to tell a couple stories here. Um, but you don't know it until it starts to happen. And I don't think you really know it unless you've been in that situation before. So I guess to answer your question, picking and choosing – um, when to work the stories in, when to work in the graphics, um, when to work in a specific package that you have that doesn't interrupt the game but complements it. And some producers are great at it. Some play-by-play announcers are great at it. Some analysts have a great feel for it. Uh, but in the end, very rare is a person that has a feel for it that doesn't have the experience in that role. It, it takes 
um, you know, it takes reps. Simple as that. And I guess it's longer and quieter than other sports. And it's you know, basketball you only got to navigate an hour and forty five minutes. Baseball inherently is three hours, and it's it's going to slow itself down for you. Um, how much did you learn from working with with and around Chip Carey in, in your time in Atlanta? A ton, a ton. He was very helpful to me. Um, he was very friendly. He was very understanding. He knew what I wanted to do um, from you know, a goal perspective in my career. And he was very supportive and appreciative of that. Um, he, so talk about a guy who knows the game and is known within the game. I mean, he's lived it his whole life. So um, we talked earlier about, you know, how, how do you know when you're not the best radio guy, his professional navigation skills, uh, both in the clubhouse and on the field and in the dugout and at the press box um, is is second to none. Um, and he just always has a very pleasant and upbeat demeanor. And I think that's the, you know, that's the biggest, it's one of the biggest things that I see in, in big league games today. Um, you know, there are a lot of, you know, old man yell at cloud moments over the last <laughs> couple of that have come to the forefront. And um, it's, it's just not appreciated anymore. And you, you got to want to be there or at least know how to act like you want to be there. And, and Chip is thrilled to be at the ballpark every day. I know that. And, and I would, on the other side, I would compare it to this. Like if, if you went in and sat at a bar to watch a game and the guy next to you was complaining the entire time, you would get up and move to the other side of the bar. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that people are shining a light on some of those situations. I think there are broadcasters out there that are learning. Um, you know, this is this is what the fans want. This is what the general audience wants, and go from there. You know, how, how much do you, you know, you talk about, and you talked about it earlier, you, knowing the game and learning from bullpens, and you just said with Chip Carey, he's, he's a guy that has been around the game all the time and knows the game so well. How much? of your time away from the stadium and, and even like now, do you just become a student of the game? Like how much will you sit down and you know what, I'm going to study X, Y, and Z so that when I do, if I'm doing a UVA game, I've got a better understanding of how the pack line works because I want to be knowledgeable on it. That's a great, that is a great question. Um, and to be perfectly honest, so from a, a tactical standpoint or learning the game, um, there's not much that I can glean from reading about it. Now, that doesn't mean like using baseball as an example. That doesn't mean that I don't spend time on baseball prospectus. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't like learning about, you know, new pitch grips or swing plane or, you know, what's, how has launch angle helped Brian Zimmerman or Daniel Murphy, uh, all of that stuff. But I, I eat that stuff up. Uh, but it's usually just to get a baseline understanding. So then when I'm with experts, when I'm with people who live it every day and play the game or continue to coach the game, I can say, hey, I read this article. I read this one perspective. What's your take on this? Because that's, I have those resources available to me. Um, you know, I was talking NBA playoffs an hour ago with Seth Greenberg, who broke down – uh, you know, with Seth, and I love him to death, but 
I, I didn't ask him to break it down for him. But he wanted to let me know why Giannis wasn't defended properly and why he was always going the ball screen on the single side as opposed to the strong side and, and how they, you know, they didn't turn him around. Um, but I want to talk about that path or swing playing. I'm either going to call up Chris Burke or wait till I do a game with them. Um, you know, I just, I have those resources at my disposal because these are people that I work with on a regular basis and I trust their opinions because they've lived it. They've coached it. They've played it. Um, not that people I read haven't been in those same situations, uh, but I, I've learned that to really appreciate a point of view, you need to hear a number of different sides, and, and that's how you that's how you really learn. Uh, and that's same thing with you know just talking baseball. It's why the you know standing and watching batting practice from the cage, or watching a bullpen session with the pitching coach. Not everybody can do that, but it's it's why it's so valuable because you're you're talking the game with people that know it. Well, and I guess the trick then there, too, is is what you said also in that you have to turn it on your analyst. It's not knowing it so that you know it, but it's knowing it so that you can ask someone else about it. Is that the, the way to approach it? 100%. And I use this comparison, and I don't know, um, you know, I, I don't know how accurate this is. But, for example, if you're calling a college football game, and you come at it with a baseline knowledge of the average fan. And it's a dangerous word to use, average, because you want to appeal to, <laughs> to a wide variety of people. But I think the average college football fan probably played high school football. Or they played enough Madden that they think they know the game at that level. So I want to ask a question based on my observation, not because I think I'm right, but because I'm saying to my analyst, Jordan Rogers, who played quarterback in the SEC, Colt Kubelik, who was an offensive lineman in the SEC, hey, here's what I see speaking on behalf of the fans sitting home on the couch, which is what they see. Hey, here's what I see. Tell me more. You know, I see the weak side blitz. Who should have picked it up? Um, I see that this quarterback has misfired on three in a row. Is it the quarterback? Is it the wide receivers? Is it the offensive line? Um, and I think that baseline knowledge is important, especially when it's only when there's only two of you. You know, two-man booth for baseball, a, a two-man booth for football with a traditional sideline reporter as opposed to sideline analyst because it has to be a conversation. It has to be a discussion. Otherwise, your analyst is giving a speech, and nobody likes listening to speeches. How do you? Uh, how much do you plan that out during a week? Like, how much conversation will you have about what they see going into something, um, or do you sit down before a game and say, "All right, what did you see? Here's what I see. Here's how we want to weave this tapestry together," or is there just a lot of deference to where they want to go? Because, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, people aren't there to hear you know you or I. It's it's they're here to watch the game and listen to them. I think it depends on the sport, but using football as an example, um, you know, our production meeting for Saturday's game, um, our first call is Monday morning. And it doesn't always leave you a lot of time because everyone is, you know, doing a number of different events and we're all traveling on Sunday. It's hard to dive in. We're lucky in that we do one conference. And so we know what the storylines in storylines are going into that next week. But usually it's, um, hey, I think I want to talk about X. Let me look at some film this week, or let's pull some film and let's see if my hypothesis is correct. 
And so we'll have discussions throughout the week, um, formally, informally, leading up to the weekend. Um, but they, and then, then those discussions bubble up again when you're watching, stay on the sideline, watching practice on Thursday. Once you see guys on the hoof, so to speak, hey, this is really impressive to me. Am I crazy? No, you're right. That's impressive. Um, but our biggest, what we do as a crew, and this is a recommendation given to me by Sean McDonough when he first worked with the sideline analyst when they had a three-man crew when he was with Spielman and McShay, was you got to get the, the two analysts in the film room together because everyone watches film differently. And if guy number one is talking about how the O-line played in week two, and the second guy is playing how the O-line played, talking about how the O-line played in week five, they may be two totally different offensive lines, or they may have been playing totally different at that point. So let's all um, come from the same perspective here and watch film together. But what it does is as we watch film, and it's, it's Jordan and it's Cole and myself and our producer Joe Taylor and um, – you sometimes are usually our director, Patrick McManus, is as either one of those guys sees something that stands out or that's impressive, we pause the tape and we talk about it. And we decide then and there, is this something that's important enough to talk about during the game? Um, one of the things that we picked up on film, for example, is that Josh Allen, who just went in the first round, the NFL draft, who was a magnificent player at Kentucky, would give away his pass rush move. He did it with his feet. And we noticed it, and we got to the point where we could predict pre-snap while we were watching film what he was going to do on every play. So it was kind of an aha moment on that Friday morning. Let's build on this. Let's figure out how we can tell this story. Let's pull some of these clips. Let's find some film that we can use. Later that morning, we just happened to be scheduled to talk with Josh. We asked him about it. We got him to stand up and demonstrate. We showed him what we had seen on film, and we asked him directly, you know, why is your, why do your feet, um, you know, we didn't, I, I don't think we wanted to get, we don't, you don't want to give away too much in those scenarios. You don't want to come right out and say, hey, man, you know, you're tipping your pitches. <laughs> uh, it was more, hey, we've noticed that you have a few different ways um, that you position your feet within your alignment. What are you doing when your toes are even? Um, you know, I'm, I'm always dropping back in coverage when my toes are even because that allows this. Why do you always do you always go to your swim move when you put your right foot forward? Um, yeah, typically because that allows me to get off faster, and and you know my strong foot is my left foot, so it gives me. A, so anyway, we got very detailed answers from him, and they were well thought out answers because he's a bright guy about why he lines up certain positions, um, and. That was something that, you know, we didn't notice until Friday morning, and we were able to, 36 hours later, less than 36 hours later, present that as a main talking point within our broadcast on Saturday night. Um, so there's a sense of pride that comes with that, but it's a total team effort that, uh, you know, it's not enough just to see it on film. Let's see how we can build this and build on to this story. How do you plot that out? in terms of how you're going to attack it on the air um, and do it so that it's informative, it's not too in the weeds, it's succinct, you're still getting... You know, how do you... What's the approach you take to say this is how we want this arc to look once we get on TV? 
There's a lot of different ways you can do it. The most important thing to me is to give you a reason to care. And the easiest way to do that is, first of all, you're not going to do this with just any player. Right? You're going to do this with a player who's an All-American candidate, who is um, productive, who is a future first-round pick, which is what he turned out to be. Um, but secondly, you have to have, give people a, a reason to get invested in it. And Josh had a lot of great stories about you know, how his career had come to be to that point and how, um, you know, from an individual, how he had grown. And just a likable guy. So you don't jump off the bus with that story. You introduce him to the audience. You give him a reason to care about personifying him. You give him an opportunity within the game to make a couple plays, and then you pick a spot within the game um, to explain, A, why he's effective, but B, what the next step might be. And I'd have to go back and watch that specific game, figure out if we, you know, did we take some self-scouting? Did we present it the right way? Did we have the proper buildup to it? Um, and did we did we tap it properly? Did we put an exclamation point on it? If I remember correctly, it was a South Carolina game, and he ended up with three sacks in the fourth quarter. A lot of times, the player puts the cap on it for you, which is why the relevance to that story is because he was such an elite player. I guess uh, the the way I'm looking at it too is like, it, will, how much of that do you, does how much of that gets woven into the tapestry of an entire game? Or is that where you, you kind of hit it for five minutes and you let it, well, that's a long time, but you hit it for a couple of minutes, you let it die, and then when it comes back around, to avoid the fact that, I'm thinking from the, the viewer at home, isn't sitting watching and going, God, they're really talking about Josh Allen over and over again today, um, so that you're getting the point across, but it's not too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is a great question, and... It's a question of balance. It, it takes um, it takes a true team effort. It's presenting new information. So even though we're talking about Josh Allen a lot, hopefully we're telling you something that you didn't know about him. You're learning about him, um, and there's there's nuance to it too. Uh, you know, if a big play happens, Josh Allen was always on the field, so this isn't a perfect example. But if a big play happens for the opposition and Josh Allen isn't on the field, Patty Mack, our director, is uh, the most talented director I've ever worked with. He's so good at his job. He would weave in a cutaway shot of Josh Allen, and I don't even need to reference it. I might, but I don't have to. But the point is, you know, there's you can be subtle about it, and you can show people where he is on the field or off the field, mm. and perhaps that's why the opposition had a big play. It's, it's a real team effort. Um, usually if you're going to do something with a lineman or somebody off the ball or away from the ball in football, one series is enough. And, and more than that can be too much. And what I mean by that is we might have a, a game with a great left tackle and say, Hey, let's talk about O-line play on this drive. And, and number one, you've got to find the right spot for it. Obviously, you don't want one that starts in the minus 10. You don't want one that starts in the red zone. Um, and ideally, it's a situation where the offense isn't going to go three and out. So if they're having some success or if they have the lead, or if you feel the game's starting to get away, it's usually a good time. 
Um, and you might two box them, which is, you know, a fancy TV term for putting two boxes on the screen. Uh, you might two box them and talk about them a little bit, but you also have to be flexible enough that if the story, the game quickly turns away from that, which it can when they're off the ball, that you punt on the idea and you move on to the next, the next thing. Hey, you got to, you got to cap it. You have to pay it off somehow, but, um, I guess, Joel, to answer your question, is, is the game really dictates everything. How much do you watch stuff back, uh, even to this day, that you do? Um, and what are you trying to glean from it when you do it in season, or is it different than what you would do if you were watching it at the end of the season? I don't watch much of my stuff back. Um, I'll go back and watch certain opens, um, especially if we have a complicated open where we're doing a a live tease or a read. Um, we have great resources for our SEC Prime crew, and we do these, you know, every other week or so, we do these incredible teases. Um, and I want to go back and, and watch those to see if my words or my reading matched the intensity of the pictures, um, if it complemented it properly, because just to pull the curtain back a little bit, Usually what I'm doing is once it gets edited and it gets sent to me, I might do a dry read. I've actually done this before uh, multiple times this year where our editor sends me the script and says, just do a dry read into your phone and send it to me tonight so I can put the final touches on it. And we'll be out to dinner and I'll duck into the bathroom and do a dry read of our teas and send it to him. And God help anybody who's in the stall next to me, because they must be one. <laughs> How this guy's really gone off the deep end. Um, and then the next day, after I arrive, and I can go in the trailer and watch it again and read it. But there's, to me, it's just really hard. Like I'm a, I'm a in the moment guy. I'm an in the stadium guy. So to do it from a sound room or to read it into a headset two and a half hours before the game begins, sometimes it can be hard to capture the emotion. So that's the, that's the first thing. I'll go back and watch those after the fact because I know what I'm going for and want to see if it's delivered. Um, I'll watch the opens because sometimes they can get complicated and they change on the fly based on, you know, team runouts, based on uh, last-second editorial decisions. And I just, I, you know, it's kind of a blur after you do it a lot of times because you're anxious to get to the game. But I won't go back and watch much of the game. Um, to me, my time is better spent and, and maybe I should, but my time is better spent watching other games, either prior games of the teams I have that week, um, other national storylines that I need to be aware of. Spend all week watching game footage. Um, I spend maybe 1% of that on my games. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, you know, what I learned in minor league baseball. I feel like I can self-critique during a game I get on the plane the next morning after the game and I can roll my eyes at something stupid I said and convince myself not to use that phrase again. Yeah. Um, so hopefully at this point I don't need it, although I'm always learning. But I just think I'm, I'm better off expanding my horizons watching other teams. Last thing I'll finish on this note uh, and, a, and a similar note. Uh, what's the hardest thing for you right now in broadcasting? What's the, the thing that is still uh, so many years into your career, something you have to be um, focused on or not concerned with is the wrong word, but you, something you have to pay attention to most uh, because it's it's still tough no matter how experienced you are at this field? Ooh, good question. Um, 
time management is the number one issue for me. Um, you know, if you call today, I'm, I'm literally working on expense reports from months ago. <laughs> uh, I know it sounds fun and sexy, but um, I just, I would rather be watching games and doing games and doing paperwork. And so that's easy to punt and push off. Um, but it comes, uh, it all comes down to time management. How am I going to prepare for my next game? Um, how am I going to prepare for a specific event when there's a, when there's a wild card in the mix, when you have a, a sick kid at home or when you yourself are under the weather or a flight gets delayed or canceled, how can you make sure that you're properly prepared so elements like that don't completely throw you off or interfere with you? And when you develop good habits and you develop a system and a structure, then when you have big, busy weekends where you're in multiple cities every day and multiple events and different teams, um, then it just come, becomes a matter of, of routine. It becomes a matter of process. But that's always a challenge because, um, you know, all of us have personal lives. We all have other things that we're interested in. Um, you want to be able to serve the viewer and to serve the audience. Uh, but at the same time, you just you can't stick your head in the hole and, you know, can't prepare for you can't prepare for a basketball game 24 hours a day or a football game 24 hours a day. So it's, it's a matter of managing your time to prepare properly and to uh, give yourself a chance to breathe and, and step away from it when it matters. That's, uh, that's probably advice uh, I know I could definitely take. Tom, if people want to find you on social media or track you down on, on the airwaves, uh, how do they find you? Well, first of all, if you want to if you want to compliment me, my Twitter handle handle is Tom <laughs> underscore Hart. If you have anything terrible to say about me, you can go to at Cole Kubelik. That's <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> crush all you want over him. Um, yeah, Tom underscore Hart on Twitter. And as far as um, broadcasting, depending on when we're going to publish this thing, I've got. College base, well, let's just put it like this. I've got college baseball every weekend on ESPN2 or SEC Network or sometimes on ESPNU um, all the way through the College World Series. And then I'll catch a break and then, you know, remains to be seen. But the college football in the fall, um, I would, we don't know our assignments. I would guess it would still be on the prime crew on the SEC Network, which is a fantastic job to have. Um, and that's but, but once again, if I do anything wrong or make any mistakes, go to at Cole Kubelik. That's <laughs> the way to criticize me on social media. And remember that no matter who your favorite team is, Tom hates your favorite team. So I hate, I hate your team. I hate it with the passion of a thousand sons. And I haven't done any homework on your team either. So if I <laughs> and call your coach by the wrong name, it's because I don't know your coach's name. That's true. All right, that is Tom Hart on episode number 149 of Play by Playcast. I'll go back to it. I teased it at the beginning. The thing to pay most attention to that, that stuck with me most was being around but not being annoying and finding the way to do that. And I never even thought, like, I, I wish I could go back to minor league baseball now and just sit and watch bullpens and do nothing but listen to what was being talked about between pitching coach and pitcher and try to figure out who these guys were and what they were doing and learning the art of pitching just by 
them learning the art of pitching. I'm always a batting cage guy. Like I always hang around the batting cage and you try to glean and pick up what you can from that was redundant glean or pick up uh, what you can from being around. But I, I never thought about translating that to any other like facet of what those guys do on a daily basis. I was kind of, that was to me, that was always their time and I never wanted to infringe on it. Uh, but clearly, and Tom demonstrated that there is a right way to do it and to go about it. And if, if you do it the right way, uh, they respect you a lot. So uh, that was interesting, and it'll be uh, interesting for, for me to see like how you can extrapolate that to other sports uh, that we all cover. So that's, uh, that's the one thing, my, my one main takeaway. I always say there's one main thing, if, if nothing else sticks with you in any episode. Uh, that was the one that, that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks uh, when he brought it up early on. That is Tom Hart here on episode number 149 of Play by Playcast. Uh, we are out of time, though. They're playing the music, which means it's time for us to go home and get up on out of here. Until next week, we are on a seven-day break. This is Play by Playcast. My name is Joel Godet, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.